Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is multi-platinum singer-songwriter and recording artist Kenny Loggins whose career is still going strong more than 50 years after his debut. From his early days crafting six albums with producer and guitarist Jim Messina as part of Loggins and Messina, to a stellar solo career which has included multiple chart-topping records as well as award-winning work for feature film soundtracks, Kenny Loggins continues to create music that resonates with all of us. He's been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song at Footloose, won a Golden Globe for that same song, and won an Emmy for his song This Island Earth. He's been nominated for 12 Grammy Awards, winning two, the first in 1980 for Song of the Year, with What a Fool Believes, co-written with Michael McDonald, and again in 1981 for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance for This Is It. Kenny was also nominated for a Tony for Best Original Score for the Broadway production of Footloose. In 2016, he was a recipient of the ASCAP Harry Chapin Humanitarian Award at the annual Chapin Awards hosted by Why Hunger. Later that year, the Guild of Music Supervisors honored Kenny with the organization's first-ever Icon Award for his outstanding achievements in film. He was also honored with the Humanitarian of the Year Award from Little Kids Rock for his extensive commitment to children's causes in 2016. Even with all of his achievements, Kenny isn't content to rest on his laurels, and he continues to tour, write, and record. We were lucky to have him carve out some time from his busy schedule to talk with us. This interview was recorded live in the offices of Atlantic Records in New York City in October of 2021. everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I'm Pete Ganbarg. I'm the head of A&R for Atlantic Records. And I am thrilled today to actually be back in person, first time in a long time, to be having an in-person conversation, which is so wonderful. And to be able to do it with today's guests is even more special. Welcome, Kenny Loggins. Hi, Kenny. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. We are taping this today in, it's October of 2021. Next month will be the 50th anniversary of your debut album with Jimmy, Sitting In. Uh-huh. 50 years of making music. I just, it, I just heard that right now. <laughs> how does that feel? It's great. You know, it's also, you know, my first reaction is, holy shit, 50 <laughs> years. But yeah. You were so great. young when you started. 21, yeah. When I think about my own kids, you know, when we were on the road, by the time I was 23, I had a million dollars. And I think how that would screw up my kids if any one of them had a million dollars at that age. So I don't know why I'm still here. When you were growing up, did you think one day this is what I'm going to do with my life? I'm going to write songs, I'm going to sing songs, and I'm going to have a million dollars by the time I'm 21? No, no. But I knew I was going to write and sing songs. I knew we, I had a sense of myself as a songwriter when I was probably nine or 10, because there was a movie about George M. Cohan that was Jimmy Cagney, and it was his life story. And I remember watching that movie, and there's one scene where he sits down and writes a song for some performer named Mary something. And and he wrote, it was Mary, Mary, long before the fashion show. And I thought, I can do that. And that stuck with me. And it was one of those things. And when I met, years ago, I met John Travolta, and he said the same movie affected him, and that's when he knew he was going to be an actor. Wow. Yeah. It's a good thing he didn't start writing songs. Yeah, it could have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the first song you ever wrote? Actually, I do, a little of it, Yeah. Not very good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of writing songs very young, I was shocked when I read that two of your most iconic songs 
were written when you were 17 years old. Yeah. So you want to talk about... Senior, Dan- senior in high school. Yeah, yeah, you want to talk about Danny's song and House at Bukuna, yeah. both well, being written when you were 17 yeah, years old. Yeah, my brother Danny was in Vista. He met his wife there, and they had a baby, and he wrote me a letter. And I wrote a song for Danny based on what he'd written to me. So a few of the lines in the song are actually taken from the letter. But he didn't ask for publishing, did he? Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so... Obviously, the song Danny's Song is a song that everybody knows, even though the words Danny's Song aren't in the lyrics. If you had titled it, Even Though We Ain't Got Money, then everybody would know the Probably lyrics. Know the, everybody does know the lyrics. That's the weird part. And no matter where I sing it, the audience always sings along. And it's especially fun. I did a big benefit the other night where... Everyone in the audience were zillionaires, and it's hilarious to see them all singing, even though we ain't got money. <laughs> At some point, it might have been true. Even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. Everything will bring a chain of love. And in the morning, when I rise, you bring a tear of joy to my eyes. House of Pooh Corner was a song I wrote when I was about to graduate from high school. And what struck me was that I just had this flash of how that last chapter of House of Pooh Corner where Christopher Robin is leaving the 100 Acre Wood is it's sort of like what we're doing when we leave high school. It was like what's happening to me. I'm leaving my childhood behind. So I used it as a metaphor. And I read that House at Pooh Corner, the book, was, was it the first book you ever read? Yeah. Well, the first real book I ever read. So it really stuck with you and really touched you. Yeah. And then how did House at Pooh Corner go from a song that you wrote as a high school student to the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band wanting to record the song? How did they hear it? Well, my first a real paying job was as a songwriter. I made 100 bucks a week from ABC Wingate. And I would go to different parties around town and all the musicians would show up, with, usually with guitars. And we would trade tunes. So we'd sing one song and then pass it to the person next to you, and they'd sing a song. I sang a couple songs, and there were a couple guys at one of the parties, uh, Jeff Hanna and Jimmy Ibbotson from the original Dirt Band. And they loved a couple of the tunes that I was doing. They wanted to do House of Corner and I think Yukon Railroad and a couple others. And then uh, while they were working up the songs for their album, they I guess they tried to check on, you know, rights, and Winnie the Pooh was owned by the Disney organization. And they were denied the use of the song, but something very fortuitous happened. Well, I happened to meet and date the daughter of Card Walker. Card Walker at the time was the CEO of the Disney Corporation. And so she... That's a nice little, uh, you know... That happens in Anaheim, but not very often. (laughs) And so she took me to, to meet her father. And with a friend of mine, Doug Inglesby, and we sat on the rug and sang House of Pooh Corner for him. And he said, so what's the deal with the lawyers? And I said, well, you know, I can't actually record the song. And he said, I'll fix that. So help me if you can. I've got to get back to the house at Pooh Corner by one. You'd be surprised there's so much to be done. Count all the bees in the hive Chase all the clouds from the sky Back to the days of Christopher Robin and Pooh So I got very lucky with that. So when the Dirt Band cut four of your songs on their first album, did people start seeking you out, saying, this guy writes really good songs, we should get to know this guy, maybe we could do something together, maybe he could write some songs for us? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not as much as I'd hoped. What what really happened was that through an A&R guy, Don Ellis, and my brother, who became an A&R guy with him, they reached out to Jimmy Messina. I had written a letter to Jimmy, but I used an address on the back of a Buffalo Springfield album. Never got to him. Never got to him. 
And but so, it, it's interesting the the role that your brother played in your life mm-hmm. because obviously his letter to you about his impending marriage and fatherhood inspired one of your earliest yeah. great copyrights. And then he gets a job with his friend Don Ellis as A&R trainees right. for Clive Davis at Columbia Records. And there's Jimmy Messina, who's a staff producer right. for Clive Davis. And they get your music to Jimmy, and Jimmy said, yeah, I, I'd like to meet Kenny and, and work with him without no, no, the intention. No, Jimmy didn't say, and work with him. Just pro- I just want to meet him. Uh-huh. I didn't know yeah, that story. He Tell was, us. He was taking a lot of meetings. He t- took a meeting with Dan Fogelberg. He even took a, a meeting with, I think it was Streisand, someone of that mega stardom, you know, to think about a, a new direction. And he'll say openly, he wasn't sure about me when, when he met me, because I didn't even own my own guitar. I had a borrowed guitar. And I just came in and started playing stuff. And he was like, yeah, I like it. But he didn't really want to go in a folky kind of direction. He wanted to go more of a rock thing. And But he wasn't supposed to be your recording partner. He was just no, going to produce you. We, right? we had no intention of making a duo. When we first started up, we thought he was producing a Kenny Loggins record. And then he showed me some of the songs that he'd never got to do with Buffalo Springfield or Poco, Angry Eyes being one of them that knocked my socks off. And a peace of mind from uh, my first album was his song. It was Mm -hmm. the only time I ever sang a Jimmy Messina song from that moment on. Interesting. And so when Clive Davis, who was running the label, heard these recordings, was it Clive who suggested that this become the act? Absolutely. Well, he heard Sitting In, and our initial intention was to use Sitting In as an introductory album. That's why we called it Kenny Loggins with Jimmy Messina Sitting In. And we thought of it as a sort of that jazz tradition of players, you know, sitting in with each other, and then he'd produce the next record. But Clive said he didn't want to release a record from a band that's going to break up. So we signed a six-year deal. And... What's interesting about that is I didn't realize how prolific the output of Loggins and Messina was, where it was basically every year an album came out, and every year that album went platinum. It was almost like, you know, record, release, tour, have hits, do it again. It was exactly like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And we toured a lot in the first couple of years. And the songs from those Loggins and Messina albums, for those who may not remember, you know, you talked about Danny's song and House at Pooh Corner and Behavala and Your Mama Don't Dance and Angry Eyes and My Music and so many iconic, iconic songs. Did you have any sense that these songs were going to be discussed, you know, decades (laughs) and decades later? No, no. As a matter of fact, I got warned by my business manager that most acts have a three-year lifespan. And so don't buy anything big. (laughs) And and of course, I I didn't listen to her because a part of me went, no, I'm going to do this forever. But she wasn't right. She would say she was right at the time. But those were the acts that they were handling. Right. And I'm just a weird, you know, exception to the rule that I'm still here. I mean, not only still here, but still relevant. And generationally, you know, new people are finding your music, whether it's the music you made with Jimmy or the music you made on your own. And, you know, the early music of Loggins and Messina was so successful that after the first album was released, you and Jimmy were nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys in 1972. Do you remember that? Yeah. I remember showing up at the Grammys and bumping in at the rehearsal and bumping into Paul Simon. And, you know, I was a huge fan, so I shook his hand. It's like all starry-eyed and like, yeah, I, I got nominated for a Grammy. He said, oh, really? I'm up for 10. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, okay. 
And we were talking backstage before we got on up here that your first Grammy nomination was 1972. Your most recent Grammy nomination was in 2009. That's 37 years. You've been nominated for 12 Grammys. You've won two, including Song of the Year for the song that you and Mike McDonald wrote. What a Fool Believes. What a Fool Believes, which we're going to talk about. But... I don't know of any other artist that I could think of off the top of my head who has a 37-year span of Grammy nominations. I hadn't known that either. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to learn a lot from yeah, each other I'm learning, today. I'm know? learning. We'll, we'll talk about that. So talk about the experience with Jimmy. And, you know, you always assumed you were going to be a solo artist, but here you are locked into this six-album deal with Jimmy. Was it amicable? I had heard that it was never a 50-50 partnership because even though you were a duo, he was also the producer. Right. So he, you know, Ty went to him, right? In well, terms of it pretty much decision. is, you know, whose decision? Let's go to the producer. Oh, right. That's you. <laughs> so at what point did the two of you realize that it was time to go your separate ways? In the sixth year. My writing started changing. I started hearing different chords in my head and different melodic lines. And I knew that what I was writing wouldn't fit into the format of the Loggins Messina album. But we were still doing really well in concert, you know, doing big shows and stuff. And Jimmy came to me when we did what was officially our last show and said, why are we breaking up again? And you know, what is, why is this happening? And I said, it's time, you know, because I'd gone to him ready six years before that right. to try and be a solo right. artist. Looking back on it, I knew I had so much to learn, and Jimmy was very much a mentor for me. I heard that there was a sound check at one of the later shows six years in where you guys got into a little argument at the sound check and you threw something into the empty stands. And Jimmy said, you know what? We should break up before we start hating each other. He did. It's a true story. And, you know, which is very prescient of him because... I think, well, he'd been through the breakup of Poco and the breakup of Buffalo Springfield, so he knew what it looked like and how it starts. So what was it like so many years later, you know, almost 30 years later, when you guys reunited and went back on tour? It was really perfect timing for me. It was 2008, and I was in the, just at the very beginning of a very difficult divorce. And I was coming apart at the seams. And he said, I know what you're going through. He said... I went through a tough time. Let's go go on the road. Now's the time. It'll take your mind off it. And he was right. It helped. Instead of hating her, I started hating him. <laughs> Kidding. And that was such a successful tour that you guys did it again a few years later. Yeah, we decided to go out again. Was it 15, I think? Right. And one of our labels here at Warner Music, Rhino, released right. the live Sitting In Again right. album in 2015. Right. So let's go back to your post-Jimmy output with your first solo album when you left Loggins and Messina, and now it's time to make your first Kenny Loggins record. Did you approach it differently than you would have when you were working with Jimmy? Well, some of what I learned from Jimmy was about how to put a band together, how to find a manager, how to find an agent, how to you know, get a tour going. And so I followed that format, and I put a band together to record the album. However, I only brought one of those guys into the studio with me when I met Phil Ramone. I was looking for a producer, and I can't exactly remember how I met Phil. There's so much that I've forgotten, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to New York, and I lived here for a while and you in a hotel room, and I worked with Phil Ramone at A&R. Right. A&R was Phil's studio. Phil, who we miss dearly, was one of the greatest record producers ever. And one of the iconic songs on that first album on Celebrate Me Home is the title track, Celebrate Me Home, which we were talking before you had envisioned as a 4-4 yeah. with dummy lyrics like Scrambled Eggs, Paul McCartney yeah. becoming yesterday. Because to me, when I first came up with the line, it just popped into my head and it kind of didn't make sense. You know, Celebrate Me Home was like bad English. But Phil disagreed. But Phil said, no, that is really a cool way to put it. And he said, but I think you need to put it in 6-8. I think it's more of that, of a gospel waltz. Gospel waltz. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of that. See, originally when I had the idea that was in my head was, please celebrate me home. Sort of a Boz Skaggs kind mm -hmm. of toto groove. So as a waltz, it becomes more wistful. 
oh yeah, it's, it was perfect for the song. And as soon as, as soon as Bob was with me, Bob is co-writer on that. Bob James. James, yeah. And as soon as we put it in his hands, I went upstairs to Phil's office at A&R and I wrote the lyrics. It was the top of December. I was starting to feel homesick. And so that's where that Home for the Holidays line came from. Did you realize at the time that if you write a holiday song, that it could become a perennial that to this day we hear every December? Not at that time, but I did. It still hadn't been picked up. I started writing a lot with David Foster. And David said, if we can write a Christmas song, we'll have a, a money machine. That sounds like something David Foster That's a David say. line. Yeah. And so I actually did try writing some straight-in Christmas songs that never actually got picked up by the world. But uh, I recorded them, but they, didn't, they just didn't catch the imagination. But Celebrate Me Home did. Uh, yeah, no, and it's become an all-time classic. On that first album that you did with Bob and Phil, Celebrate Me Home in 77, your version of I Believe in Love was the first single from that album. Uh-huh. And for those who don't know, that song was originally written for right. and recorded by Barbara Streisand in A Star is Born. Star is Born. What was it like hearing one of the great voices of all time sing your song? Well, I love being in the studio when they were working on it, too. I loved working with Barbara. She's like one of the great talents. And I remember asking her, do you ever do vocal warm-ups? She said, no, she hates vocal warm-ups. Just goes out there and the pipes are already there. But, you know, we sat for a couple days and I just showed her the timing was perfect because I had a lot of beginning melodies that I was going to develop for Celebrate Me Home. So we sat in her living room in Malibu and I showed her just kind of la-la lyrics on a lot of these things. And I Believe in Love was one of them. All I had at the time was the line, I believe in love, I believe in love, over and over again. Nothing and no one ever gets to you, seems the wind could blow right through you, believing in gods that never knew you. I believe in love, I believe in love, I believe in feeling good. There's a rumor that she asked you if you would like to act in the film. It's interesting. I don't know how that rumor got out. But just for a moment, it was like, have you ever thought about acting? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was me auditioning for Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Your next album, Night Watch, which you did with Bob, the first single, really, as a kid, I remember hearing this song everywhere was Whenever I Call You Friend, a duet with Stevie Nicks. Right. You had opened for Fleetwood Mac on their Rumors tour, right. so you got to know Stevie. Obviously, her endorsement and her vocal contribution yeah. to Whenever I Call You Friend really helped propel that song. And it propelled a- my career. I, I always give you know credit to Stevie for helping launch my solo career, because it was that duet that really got radio to pay attention. A hundred percent. And Talk about production choices and arrangement choices. The beginning of that song with the stacked acapella vocals mm-hmm. is so iconic and gorgeous. Thank you. Was that your idea? Was that Bob's idea? That's my idea. Bob was in the control room and he said, we need an intro for this. And so I just said, let me try something. And I just got pitch and started singing ideas and, and stacking different count. I was raised on the Beach Boys. right? So to me, it was just me doing what Brian might have done. Right. You know, and it worked to just moves into that song. When I was working on that, that was a melody that came to me in some locker room of some arena. Right. And on tour. And on tour. Mm-hmm. And when I first got the melody, I heard it as a ballad. So the a cappella thing that I was singing was in slow motion to make a ballad intro that then when the song kicks in, it has that contrast and jumps out of that. Ooh, 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 
When did you first start writing with Michael McDonald? I don't know the year exactly, but How it, did was, you meet? it was, well, I heard Living on a Fault Line, the Doobie Brothers album, and I was blown away by his music and his voice and knew that he was going to be important. And I also felt a kinship to the music he was writing. And so I put the word out that I wanted to write with him. And I heard from some friends that he was looking to write with me. Wow. Which was, you know, encouraging. And I went to his home. We set up a writing date at his home in Van Nuys. And I remember I was unpacking my guitar from the trunk and hit the door, the front door to his house was open and he was going over ideas on the piano. And I heard the, which ended up the actual lyric to that song. <laughs> and, and he, and he stopped and my imagination kept going. And I heard the next part of the B section. She had a place in his life. So I knock on the door and he comes up. We do the obligatory handshake. I said, that thing you were just playing? That was the I first time I, you met him? Yeah. Wow. I said, that thing you were just playing? I think I know how the next part goes. She had a place in his life. He had a As she rises to her apology, anybody else would surely I like to say we were writing together before we met. That's amazing. The, mm-hmm. A bunch of the songs that you guys wrote together, you recorded for your albums, and he recorded with, you know, either with the Doobie Brothers or for his solo records. Right. Was there a competition, like who's going to have the hit with this one? I think if we let the label guys get involved, there would have been. But because they weren't, we just said, whoever gets there first. You know, and it, w- it wasn't a competitive thing. We just, you know, we'd go to school on each other. I learned, for example, that when I cut, cut What a Fool Believes, I learned to never cut a co-written song with Michael again without him on piano. Right. Because that stride thing that he's got is, you know, Ray Charles gospel piano. And most of the guys I work with were more thumb-to-thumb right. David Foster style. Like, jumping forward a couple of years, when you listen to your song Heart to Heart, which was a hit in the early 80s, that's so iconic Michael McDonald on the keyboard that it can't be anybody else. It is. And I'll tell you why. I wrote the chorus with David Foster. And when we finished the chorus, I said, I know who has to write the verse. So I took that melody to Michael and the the Rhodes piano is Michael. So when we recorded the song, I had Michael and his Rhodes in one room and David and the grand piano in another room. And when we'd hit the chorus, Michael would stop playing and David would pick it up at the chorus. Wow. And we had no digital editing back then, so it had to be played right. So on on the Nightwatch album, your version of What a Fool Believes comes out. Obviously, the Doobie Brothers version of What a Fool Believes comes out. That becomes the hit. Mm -hmm. And you and Michael together accept the Grammy Award for Song of the Year for the best song written in the year 1979-1980 for yeah. What a Fool Believes. Yeah, a proud moment for me. And it took a while for us to write the second song, the, a song being that obviously What a Fool Believes was the first song we wrote. And then we took a year or so before we wrote a second song. And I think it was a little bit of the sophomore jinx kind of vibe, you know, like maybe we should just leave it, leave right. it alone. And so when I saw him, I said, we really have to write a second song. So we got together and we had a melody going and the melody came pretty quick. 
and it came with two lines of lyric attached. There have been times in my life I've been wondering why, which is a classic Michael kind of movie opening. And then a, a line in the middle, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. So we tried writing lyrics to that, that maybe it's over was referring to a relationship. And the song wasn't going for it. We didn't like what we had. And then my dad went in the hospital for major surgery. And I visited him in the hospital that morning. We talked about whether or not he was going to survive. He was trying to convince me that he was going to die on the operating table. So when I went back to write with Michael later that day, I said, I think I know what the song is about. Wow. You think that maybe it's over is not a relationship. And then I actually got to play it for my dad before he went into the operation. So obviously that song that you're talking about is This Is It from the Keep the Fire album that came out in October of 79. And you and I were speaking earlier about the brilliant Tom Dowd who produced the record. Tell mm -hmm. us a Tom Dowd story. Tommy Dowd was actually a nuclear physicist who had dropped all that to become a record producer. And True story. Uh, yeah. And like, unlike many of my friends who think they're a nuclear <laughs> physicist, but this isn't rocket science. Tom, right. but. Quincy used to say, this is not a cure for cancer. Right. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> is, are there any other? <laughs> is there any other Quincy? So Tommy, when I first met him, I played him a couple of songs. And how, how well did you know him? I met him one time and he was absolutely lovely. He's a very quirky guy. When I first played him about three songs, just basically auditioning, he, he would go like this. Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. And I would go, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? He got ideas really fast, obviously. So we started working on a record. And Tommy was the only guy, the only producer that I've had that ever kicked me out of my own studio. Because <laughs> I was just, I had too many ideas. And it was getting in his way. So we said, you got to get out. I've got to produce this session. And he's good. How, how, long, <laughs> how long until he let you back in the room? I paced for about 15 or 20 minutes before I finally... Probably felt like hours, right? I was pretty pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> There's a song on that album, Keep the Fire, called Who's Right, Who's Wrong. And Michael Jackson sings background on that? Yeah. How did that happen? I met him at his album release party. For um, Off the Wall? I think it was Off the Wall, yeah. Speaking of Quincy. Yeah. And... And while I was there, I said, hey, you know, you ever feel like singing on somebody's album? I'd love to have you as a guest singer. And he said, sure. <laughs> Keep on playing this game of right or Talking about who's right, who's wrong, one of the things that fascinates me the most about your career is that there have been so many different phases of your career yeah. where I actually wrote them down. And I, huh. I kind of made some of these up, so tell me if I got them wrong. But, you know, there's singer-songwriter Kenny, which starts with... with Kenny's song. Yeah, and with Loggins and Messina, singer-songwriter Kenny. Then... In the late 70s and the 80s with Who's Right, Who's Wrong, with This Is It, with, you know, all the, the solo records that we're talking about with uh, Whenever I Call You Friend, there's kind of like, quote unquote, Yacht Rock Kenny. Hmm. Then there is all the movie stuff. There's Soundtrack Kenny. Then Return to Pooh Corner. There's children's music Kenny, hmm. you know, and then obviously with Celebrate Me Home, there's Holiday Kenny. And 50 years in, 
all of these Kennys are still, you know, with us all the time as we listen, you know, now that the music's at the tip of our fingers on Spotify, it's all there. But how do you feel about kind of reinventing yourself or being kind of pigeonholed in a way where it's like, oh, that's the soundtrack guy. That's the Yacht Rock guy. That's the singer-songwriter That was actually frustrating, especially for my record company. When I made Footloose, they went, oh, do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they did. Be the rock Kenny. And so I made an R&B record, <laughs> which totally pissed them off. And, uh, but you always did what you wanted to do. You always was, followed your own muse. You know, the, the term follow your muse, it was the music that was coming to me. Donnie Einer was president of Columbia Records for a while. I made Leap of Faith, which did really well. And he loved that record. And he wanted me to do another Leap of Faith. So did I. Right. But what came to me was the children's album. Right. And I said, I've got this idea for a children's album. And he said, it'll kill your career. Take it down the street. I don't want it on the label. And it's like two million deep Right, now. he was wrong, yeah. We didn't take the time, he didn't take the time to say, what are you thinking? What do you have on your, how are you going to approach this? Because it isn't really a children's record. I mean, children love it because it's music they know, but it's great music written for movies or artists like Paul Simon, who, Jimmy Webb, who write for their own children. right. So it's really brilliantly written music. And I thought, I have five kids. And as I got deeper into all my children and singing nighttime lullabies right. for them, I went, wait, these are great songs. And I, I recorded a John Lennon song, Love Is, Love mm-hmm. Is Real, Real Is Love, because that's what I sang to my daughter at bedtime. Right. I read that you wrote Return to Pooh Corner because you had a child on the way and you had nightmares of Barney the Purple Dinosaur revisiting your life at bedtime. Yeah, well, it was, you put it in a pretty dramatic way. <laughs> I, I, know, I know what they're all thinking here. Is, it wasn't exactly that nightmare. But, but it was nightmares of having to watch Barney, you know, oh, over I've, and, I've had those nightmares. Over yes. and over and over again, again, right. you know, with a fourth child. And I said, this is where the idea came from, as I said, I wish somebody would make a record that the parents could love as much as the children. Right. And then I thought about it, thought, maybe I could. Right. Yeah. And you, you'd be, um, I, I'd say you'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be, but I was surprised when I was telling a bunch of my friends and, and coworkers that I was meeting you and we were going to talk today almost to a person, they were like, oh my God, House of Pooh Corner. Not whenever I call you friend, not Not I'm all right, not Footloose. You know, so there are a lot of parents out there who this music is really meaningful to them and their children. Getting back to the Yacht Rock thing for a second, I know that could come off as a pejorative term. So what's really interesting, there's a website. It's called Yacht or Nyat. Or Nyat? Nyat. You know, N. I don't know this. So... These guys have decided, we will let you know, we are the experts on right. Yacht Rock. On what is Yacht Rock. What is Yacht Rock and what is Nyat Rock, <laughs> right? And there's a scale called Yatsky. I kid you not. If you go to yachtorrock.com, there is a Yatsky scale, and it goes from zero to 100. There are over 500 songs on this scale, and there are zeros and there are 100s. Five of the top six songs on the Yatsky scale are either by Kenny Loggins or Michael McDonald. And I've written them down. If you're curious, you know, if you ask me what I do when I've got a downtime, you know, hey. You have a lot of time on your hands. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Way too much time. What a Fool Believes is the only song on the Yatsky scale that gets a perfect score. 100. Second is Heart to Heart. 99.63. Sweet. Third is Michael's song, I Keep Forgetting, you know, with his hat tip to Libra Installer, 98.5. Fourth, You and Michael, This Is It. That's Uh 98.25. Then fifth is a band called Airplay, who a lot of people may not know was David Foster's band. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't realize that. Yes. And number six is Who's Right, Who's Wrong that we talked about. Which I wrote with Richard Page. From Mr. Mr. Pages. Oh, from Pages and later, Mr. Mr. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now let's go to movie Kenny and talk about, obviously- Well, the, uh, before you do yes. that, let me interrupt you. So being an A&R guy, yes. you look at that Yacht Rock list and what do those songs have in common? They were all written by you? No. <laughs> Although maybe. <laughs> 
You made a lot of money on all those songs? No, no, as a, as a musician, as a, a music guy. I mean, what do you see that musically in common? You know, now I listen to those songs and I just shut my eyes and I see a yacht. I, I don't know. Oh, well, that ruined it for you. Those are all jazz-inflected R&B, white R&B, mostly white R&B. Blue-eyed soul. Blue-eyed soul. We were all, that, that whole smooth jazz thing, Sanborn, mm-hmm. all those cats that mm-hmm. were the New York guys, that stuff, Bob James, of course, right. was, was starting to be incorporated into our music. We were writing right. with more chords. I was hearing chords I had no idea how to play. So I had to write with keyboard guys to get those right. sounds. And I think that era of what they call smooth rock and roll right. was really very jazz-inflected. Very interesting. Even some of the other players, not yeah. the keyboard players, but the Hiram Bullocks and the Lee Rittenhours and the jazz cats who played yeah. on all these records. I met Hiram Bullocks on the steps of A&R Studios. Wow. I went out for a break recording with Phil Ramone, and Hiram was sitting on the front steps. I had not met him. And I sat next to him. We started shooting the shit and talking about New York and stuff going on. I said, are you a player? He said, yeah, I, I play guitar. Lead guitar? Yeah. I, said, I need a lead guitar player on, on this song I'm working on. Do you have your guitar with you? He said, it's in the car. Said, wow. We'll go get it. Let's set it up. He comes in with his amp and guitar, sets up. Phil Ramone mics him, and we play Lady Luck from the Celebrate Me Home album. And he starts burning this solo. Did Phil and know him? Phil said, who the hell is this? Phil never met him before. No, Phil didn't know him either. And that was like a lifelong friendship with Hiram. Amazing. Let's jump to movie, Kenny, for a second. The first movie that, you know, we talked about A Star is Born, but the first movie, like from the 80s on, that people associate you with is Caddyshack. Right. There is a through line from A Star is Born because John Peters. Right. Tell everybody about Caddyshack. Well, I I met John through Star is Born. John was kind of in the kitchen and in the living room as we're working on songs, and he was eavesdropping. We became friends. Then uh, I got a call from Michael Dilbeck, who was my NR at the time, with Columbia Records. And he said, John wants you to go by his studio on the way home from L.A. to Santa Barbara and check out the movie he's working on. So because we're friends, I said, yeah. And I went up and watched a rough cut of Caddyshack that didn't have an ending and it didn't have a gopher. (laughs) And and yeah, John says, after I watched it, he goes, "Uh, so these scenes that are empty... We're going to have a hand puppet come up. And I went, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> it worked. And I heard that when you first saw the scene of the character Danny riding his bicycle in the opening of Caddyshack, the temp music was Bob Dylan, of yeah. all things. What I learned, actually from that moment, was that the director was trying to tell me something about the character. Because the opening scene is a kid riding a bicycle through a suburbia. And I thought, that's a really weird song to put in behind that kid. It it was disjuncted. And I thought, what does it mean? And when I thought about it, I figured, well, he's trying to tell me this kid is a rebel. But he wasn't a rebel in the movie until the very end of the movie. It's something I learned in English class called foreshadowing. Right. So when I worked on that song... I did it, I'm all right, nobody worry about me. And I just straight in, rebel, you know, like you. <laughs> with, with a little bit of a, maybe a subliminal nod to Dylan with, with the vocal approach? Exactly. Well, Steeler's Wheel had, had a hit Stuck record called Stuck yeah. in the Middle, and, and Rafferty was, was doing right. Dylan. Mm-hmm. And I thought, shit, if he can do Dylan, I can do Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> and if they want a Dylan song, I'll be Dylan. But the interesting thing about that song is it not only has that, but it has the the nod to the silhouettes got a job, and it also has that crazy gospel bridge in it. I have no idea where that came from. My music has always been a co-writer with me, and quite often my lyrics that come out are things that I'm trying to tell myself. And that was an important moment. That's great therapy. In a way, yeah, to really get in touch with the subconscious. And is that Eddie Money singing background? To my everlasting embarrassment, here's what I mean. We were in the studio recording, and I think the producer, I'm all right, check me on this, was Bruce Botnick? Yes. Yeah, Bruce produced The Doors. Right, and he produced, Mm -hmm. did he produce Eddie Money as well? Maybe that's why Eddie was next door, mm-hmm. but he was ne- in the studio next door recording something of his. And 
I'd known a little bit about him, but I hadn't yet discovered Eddie. I think this might have been just before he had his hits. And I listened to him sing, and I thought, that's a great voice. And I said, would you do me a favor and come over next door when you get a break? I've got this one line I, I'd love for you to sing. So he did. He came in and sang, was it Cannonball? Cannonball right away or something like that. Mama man, it's this big edgy thing. And like an idiot, I forgot to give him credit on the record. Oh, gee. And he got so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> he never forgave me. He said, you know that prick logger? Like, so, you know, kind of. Attitude. I don't think I knew that he sang on the song until recently. Mm. And I went back and I listened to him, and it's clear as a bell. He yeah. you can hear him. That was I'm All Right for Caddyshack. There was also Mr. Knight for Caddyshack, your song. Oh, right, right, the song. Yeah. yeah, which a lot of people love that song as well. And that kind of led to this resurgence of Kenny Loggins in the movies. So talk about Footloose and talk about Dean Pitchford and how that came together and how, unlike Caddyshack, you didn't write to a screening. You actually wrote to a screenplay. To the screenplay, Yeah which almost never happens. But again, an incredible lucky break. Dean was a friend of mine. He and I had written lyrics together for my songs. And he came to me one day with a screenplay. And he said, would you do me a favor and check out my screenplay? And if you like it, we can write a song or two for it. So I did. I read it. I liked it. It wasn't like Gone with the Wind, but it was good. <laughs> and, I, and since he was a friend of mine, I said, sure, let's write a song. We sat with the screenplay, and he picked out a scene in the middle where the kids leave town to go dancing in a neighboring town. And we thought we were writing Footloose for that scene. Mm -hmm. and, and then we just had I'm Free, which they called Heaven Helps the Man mm -hmm. on the album. Mm -hmm. We had that sort of in our pockets. But the one that we knew we wanted, of course, was Footloose. And then the director heard the song and used it in the opening credits and used it in the closing dance scene, and it was like a slam. We, I didn't know it. Dean to, didn't tell me where the song had been used in the movie. So I went to the screening and had no idea. And when they opened with the, the scenes of the feet moving, mm -hmm. and I turned to him and said, what the hell? What's, what's going on? He said, just watch. Amazing. Yeah, slam dunk. I'll hit the scene And that song became your first number one song on the Hot 100 and has become so iconic that it went from everyone's favorite song to nobody cared about the song to now everybody loves the song again. Yeah, how did that happen? Great song. You I know, don't know. What, great song. But there was a time. period of time where people would not get up and dance to Footloose. I kind of blame disco for it. Because mm -hmm. I think while I was doing movie music, disco was totally changing the face of Right. Pop radio. Well, what's so smart about what you did career-wise back then in the mid to late 70s into the early 80s is there were a lot of artists, you know, rock artists who, you know, had to grapple with disco. So right. what do you do? Do you do a Rolling Stones Miss You or do you do a yeah. Rod Stewart Do You Think I'm Sexy and try to take your own take on disco? I think it was like when the talkies came into movies. <laughs> a lot of the 70s artists just disappeared. Right. But what you did is you did an end run around disco yep. where you were able to tie yourself to movies. And this was back when, you know, these movies were huge and these movie soundtracks were huge. And no one had done it before. Nobody had mixed rock and roll with movies. Right. So you have Caddyshack, you have Footloose, and then you have Top Gun. 
you know, with Top Gun, you there was a screening for Top Gun. I love this story yeah. that you realized that everybody was going to be writing to, you know, the, the opening, opening scene, scene. Yeah. In, in the film. And you were like, you know what? Let them try that. Because you go to a screening and there's every other rock star, you know, yeah. in the world there sitting next R&B to you. R&B acts in the audience. Right. Like, right. Okay. And so you said, you know what? I'm going to write for the volleyball scene. Because nobody's going to write for that. And playing. I'm pretty sure nobody wrote for that scene. Right. And, but playing with the boys with became the boys. iconic, used in the volleyball yeah. scene. And then, ironically, the opening scene does come back to you. Well, I was in the studio recording Playing with the Boys with Peter Wolf, another great producer. And he and I had co-written that song. Anyway, we got a call from Giorgio Moroder's office. Giorgio was the fellow that was doing the bulk of the music for Top Gun and had written some pop things for it as well. And I hadn't met him yet, but I got a call from the office that they had an act all set to record Danger Zone. And that act, the lawyers had ruined the deal or something, and the act had dropped out. And he said, I need to dub this song into the movie in two days. I need a singer. And I said, I'm a singer. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, all I really asked was, is it up-tempo? Because I'd written nothing but ballads up till then. Mm -hmm. And I needed something for my show. And I heard, yeah, it's a rocker. So, you know, what do you think? I said, I'll, I'll be there. I sat down with Whitlock. Bobby Whitlock. Bobby Whitlock. Mm-hmm. And we worked on the song, changed some words, changed some chords. Talked to Giorgio. I was in the studio next day, I think, recording the vocal on it. And one of the things that I recently confessed is that I'd been steeped in Tina Turner's comeback stuff. Mm-hmm. And I loved what she was doing. And when I heard the song... I just automatically sang it a little like Tina. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that's why when you listen to it, you'll hear Highway to the Danger Zone. <laughs> <laughs> that was me going, I'll tipping I'll your be cap Tina. to Tina Turner. Yeah. Not, not not a bad person to tip your cap yeah. to. Some of the other songs for the films that you had hits with, Meet Me Halfway, Nobody's Fool, songs that become much more memorable than the films, arguably, than the films themselves. Strangely, yeah, luckily. Nobody's Fool was Caddyshack 2, Caddyshack 2, which I'm sure everyone here saw. (laughs) Meet Me Halfway was to Over the Top. Over the Top. Probably the first and last movie ever made about arm wrestling. Arm wrestling, with Sylvester Stallone Pretty as a champion stuff. arm wrestler. Yeah. Yes. Talk about We Are the World. You have a solo on We Are the World. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about that now, and I look back at that era, and I think part of the reason I have that solo line in We Are the World is because I'd made friends with Michael three or four years before that. He sang on your song. Yeah. But I also I got a great note from Quincy Jones during the making of High Adventure that I had made a song that he loved. So it worked in that way. They had that semicircle with the different soloists lined up. And I think I was next to Springsteen, if I remember. Springsteen sings right before. He sings on that song right before you. Yeah. I think it's it's him, it's you, then is it Steve Perry, and then it's Daryl Hall? We are. If you watch the video, you can watch Steve Perry kibitzing Cindy, trying to help her sing her line, which I think is just a classic moment. Talk about Steve Perry. Your song with Steve Perry, Don't Fight It, from the High Adventure album, yeah. is also iconic. I mean, those. think about you, know, you singing with these great voices. You sing with Stevie Nicks. You sing with Steve Perry. You sing with Michael McDonald. It all works. You know, yeah. you, know you talked about the eclectic direction of my career, I have my big brothers to thank for that as well. 
because my brother Bob was much more into folky stuff and country kind of things. And my brother Dan, who loved all kinds of music, but his main thing was rock and roll and R&B. And he turned me on to... So as a seven, eight-year-old, I'm learning everything from... Yeah, the really beginnings of rock and roll. Did one of your brothers have a guitar that when he wasn't home, you would sneak into his room? I had to sneak into his room. I was Danny. Had to sneak into his room, take a guitar off the wall, take it to my room, learn a few chords, get it back on the wall before he came home from school. Does he? Did he ever find out you did that? Well, yeah, eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing about, we talk about how the songs live on and on and on. What do you make of people either covering your songs or sampling your songs? We talked about... Barbara Streisand singing I Believe in Love. Aretha Franklin does an amazing version of What a Fool Believes. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I love her phrasing on that. you know, some of the greatest singers of all time singing songs that you wrote. Yeah. Well, as a songwriter, that's really fulfilling. And then, you know, fast forward decades, you and Michael McDonald are collaborating with Thundercat in 2017. What was that like? That's an interesting thing because, you know, he just won a Grammy, but I had never heard his stuff. And my oldest son, who's now 40, and my youngest son, who at the time was a teenager, both called me and said, Dad, Thundercat wants to work with you. I said, who's that? He said, well, you just call him back and let him know you're around. <laughs> did you so enjoy that? I did. I yeah, went through session. the management and reached out to Thundercat. And I called Mike McDonald and said, we, this guy wants to write with us. We should do it. And then we talk about some of the artists sampling your music. It's so diverse. You know, it goes from Nas on We Will Survive to Kirk Franklin, who rewrote This Is It as declaration about his faith in God. Which I love that version, by the way. To Daft Punk, you know, who sampled House at Pooh Corner and Face to Face in 2011. Talk about you're running the gamut here. You yeah, know? well, it's not really me. It's them. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's your song. Yeah, I know. You know, it's, it's... And, and think about how great these copyrights are Mm -hmm. to be finding these artists of the next generation who can repurpose them and recreate them in a brand new way for a new generation. Yeah, Common did uh, Celebrate Me Home. He did. Yeah, Great version of that song. You're very involved in some great charities. Talk about the book that you you wrote a Footloose book about animals. You also work with the San Diego Zoo. San Diego Zoo, right. I had been approached by a publisher to write a children's book And they had suggested that it be a reworking of the lyrics of Footloose. And I said, what could that possibly be about? And the publisher said, I don't know, but it's got to have a lot of animals in it because children love animals. (laughs) I said, okay, well, so I placed it in a zoo and the zookeeper's the only one in on this where he lets them out under a full moon and they all get out and dance. And I could write this song about all these different animals which was really fun and very lighthearted. It wasn't like a big serious project. So the book got made and then we started looking around to see, well, what's the best way to promote it? What's the best way to to sell it? And I thought, why don't we try and get it into the zoos around the country? And it, it would fit into that theme. We approached the San Diego Zoo and they loved the idea, but they said, you know, we've got this closed circuit TV station that we do for children's hospitals. And Maybe we can figure out something you could do there. And I said, well, how about if I write a theme song for your channel, which at the time they called Zoo TV. And I got together with 
Josh Bartholomew and Lisa Harriton, who wrote Everything is Awesome for the Lego movie, mm -hmm. the first one. Mm -hmm. And they won an Academy Award on that. Right. And when I heard them working together, I thought, this, this is a great writing duo. I want to work with them. And I figured since they had that sort of Lego movie thing, they ha would have the right vibe for the song. We got together. This was just before 2020. So we were at their house at their studio. He'd already established a groove and a bass line. And so the three of us just started singing over the top of it. And we created a song called Great Adventure. And the, the premise is to have a, something that when a child wakes up in the hospital, they can turn on their TV because the, the whole channel is all about the care and feeding of animals. So it's very attractive to young children. And then the idea of having something that's fun and uplifting and sets a really positive tone for them for that day. And so that's what we did with Great Adventure. And it, it's turned into, you know, a pretty pop tune. Are you ready for a great adventure? You're also working on a memoir. I am, indeed. I've been doing that through most of 2020 and on into where we are now. How does that feel, revisiting your career and your life and it's, all this It's music? really interesting to, to take a serious look backwards. I notice certain behaviors that are consistent in my life that I never really looked at. And like a girl that I lived with for five years that I'd now look back and go, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> but maybe we all have similar stories on that one. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think, well, what, how do I reconcile this? You know, how do I look at things, things I learned from Jimmy Messina, the good and the bad, right. that I look back at now and think, wow, you know, I really, I really put up with that. That's interesting, you know, and it's been an interesting passage, especially exploring how much to look at the marriages and how the marriages affected my music and my career. My second marriage especially affected my career deeply because that's where Leap of Faith came from. Right. Leap of Faith, the album, had the song Conviction of the Heart mm -hmm. on it, yeah. right? Right. And that has become an environmental anthem. Yeah, it was early on. Gore referred to it as the unofficial environmental you anthem. You actually performed that at the Lincoln Memorial, right? Right, right. In front of a lot of people. On the steps, what was it like? 100,000 people on the lawn. Obviously, you've spent over 50 years now making music, and most of those 50 years have been spent on the road sharing this music live with your audience. The last year and a half, you haven't really been able to do that, but lately you've mm -hmm. been able to get back on the road and play some shows. Yeah, a little bit. How's mm -hmm. that been? It's great to get my feet wet again and to reconnect to something that I do and I have a lot of pride in. I started worrying during 2020 especially only doing like 12 shows virtually. And I noticed that the high notes were getting higher and a lot of stuff was getting harder to sing. Even like the top note in Danny's song was, even though we ain't, it's like, wait a minute, that's, that's too high for me now. How did that happen? So I decided to hire a vocal coach. And I think, you know, shit, I, I have a coach to train me for pickleball. <laughs> but I don't have a vocal coach. What, what am I thinking? Hopefully not the same guy. <laughs> no, although he's a hell of a singer. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so I found a vocal coach and started working with him. Classically trained, but actually occasionally the lead singer of Ambrosia. Oh, wow. Ken Stacy. Wow. And so he knows pop music and he knows how to adapt the training to a, a pop style. And it's helped me a thousand percent. So when you were out doing the first show back, you know, after it was safe enough, you know, with COVID to go out and actually play for an audience. What was that feeling of actually playing for people again? It's always a rush. 
And it was, you know, right back into it, you know, sort of like home for me. It's, it's a comfort zone. But knowing that I could hit the notes really made a difference. You know, getting out there and I was getting very anxious about whether or not I could hit, sing the songs I've sung. And then once I had a few months under my belt with my coach, then I knew I could. Awesome. So we can all look forward to seeing you out on the road soon? Well, yes. Although I got used to sitting at home <laughs> during 2020. I think we all did. Yeah. And, and I, I call it retirement a rehearsal. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not sure how long I want to actually stay on the road actively, maybe just a few shows a year or something like that. We'll see how that goes. Well, I don't think I've ever seen you in concert. So hopefully you can. You haven't. I, not a full Kenny Loggins show. Yeah. So, you know, maybe some benefits and things like that. But yeah. so hopefully you'll be doing this for a while and we can all go out and see. Kenny yeah, Loggins no, I'd, show. I'd love that. I, I know where you can get tickets. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll talk to you after the show. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for 50 plus years of incredible music that continues to inspire and is just you know, music that puts a smile on our faces when we hear it. And mm -hmm. thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Kenny Loggins. Thanks. Thanks a lot to Kenny Loggins for sharing his time with us and giving us such valuable insight into his amazing career. Kenny's memoir, Still All Right, will be published in June of 2022 from Hachette Books. It's a look back at his entire life and career to date with stories never shared publicly before. More info on Kenny's upcoming memoir is available at stillallright.com. You can also visit Kenny's website at kennyloggins.com and don't forget to listen to the playlist that we built for this episode at our website, rockschoolpodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenau, Catherine Hoppy. Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.